A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This episode contains distressing themes and is intended for mature audiences only. Listener discretion is advised. On this episode of They Walk Among America. William Fisher was a man of mystery in the affluent community of the Hamptons. He was wealthy, well-liked, and was known as a bachelor. But little did his friends know that he had a dark secret. William had abandoned his family in Monticello, leaving behind a son who was battling cystic fibrosis. He chose a life of middle-class luxury over his own flesh and blood. On a stormy night in 1986, William's son, Billy, paid him a visit. Sometime later, Billy called up his friend, Nancy, and asked her to come and collect him. Nancy braved the treacherous weather and set off on a journey that would drastically change the lives of all three individuals forever. Hello, listeners. I'm your host, Nina Instead. Welcome to Episode 67 of They Walk Among America, a joint production between the Law and Crime Podcast Network and They Walk Among Us, the award-winning true crime podcast. Fisher's life began with a diagnosis that would shape his very existence. He was born with cystic fibrosis, a debilitating genetic disorder that affects the respiratory, digestive, and reproductive systems. It's caused by a mutation in the CFTR gene, which produces a protein that regulates the transport of salt and water in and out of cells. In cystic fibrosis, this protein is either absent or not functioning properly, which leads to the production of a thick mucus that clogs the lungs, pancreas, and other organs. Despite the challenges that Billy faced, his parents, William and Patricia Fisher, were determined to provide him with a comfortable life. William was a successful auto dealer at Manhattan Nissan, earning between $60,000 and $100,000 a year, depending on commissions. His generous income allowed the family to live in comfort, while Patricia stayed at home to care for Billy and his brother Jason. But fate had different plans for the Fisher family. Eventually, William abandoned the family in New York 
leaving Patricia to raise the boys alone. William moved into a half a million dollar waterfront home in Shinnecock Bay, Southampton, where he assimilated into the affluent Hamptons community. Here, he attended social events and made friends from this new walk of life. His neighbor, Raymond Newman, described him as a perfect neighbor and a nice guy. But nobody in William's new circle knew about his family. To them, he was a carefree bachelor. The task of raising two boys alone proved to be too difficult for Patricia, and before long, Billy and Jason were split up and sent to live in foster homes. Billy and Jason tried their best to remain in contact. In 1982, they discovered that William was getting remarried to a woman named Joan. Over in Southampton, Joan suggested to Billy that the boys come to live with them. There was more than enough room in their lakeside property, but William was against the idea and said that under no circumstances would the boys be coming to live with him. Billy's struggle with cystic fibrosis was made even more difficult by the lack of support from his family. However, he was determined to become more self-sufficient. He took a massive step toward independence in 1986 when he rented a room in central Islip. Despite his best efforts, Billy's health issues persisted. He was hospitalized at the Cystic Fibrosis Clinic at Good Samaritan Hospital in West Islip for two weeks in November. Shortly after he returned home, on Thanksgiving, he was on a train when he observed a young woman looking distressed. He approached her and introduced himself and asked if she needed help. 21-year-old Nancy Ann Heyer had gotten lost and was trying to make her way back home to Hicksville, Long Island. Nancy Heyer was born to parents Polly and Joan Heyer in October of 1965. When she was just seven years old, her father tragically passed away. After graduating from Hicksville High School, Nancy found employment at a Red Lobster restaurant, where she worked as a waitress until she saved up enough money to purchase a car. Friends and family described Nancy as warm and welcoming. She was known to go above and beyond to help others. This trait served her well when she began working as a clerk at a chemical bank office in Jericho in 1986, near where she lived with her mother and younger sister, Deborah. Unfortunately for Nancy, she did not enjoy her role at the bank. She was dissatisfied with the job, and in November 1986, she began taking Fridays off so she could search for a new job somewhere else. After chatting on the train for several moments, Billy offered to escort Nancy back home, and she happily accepted this proposal. This led to the start of a close friendship between the pair. Although Billy had romantic feelings for Nancy, she only saw him as a friend. She confided in her sister that she thought Billy was a lovely man, but she didn't want to hurt his feelings. Billy was determined to win Nancy over. There was an upcoming Christmas party for the Cystic Fibrosis Clinic at Good Samaritan Hospital in West Islip. He anticipated that Nancy would accompany him, telling nurse June Rudolph that he was coming with his girlfriend. On a particularly stormy day, December 11, 1986, 
Nancy was at home with her mother when Billy called to ask if she could pick him up from his father's house. William had recently retired and was living alone after he and Joan had become estranged. Nancy thought back to Billy's earlier kind gesture and felt that it was only fair that she repay the favor. Nancy asked her mother, Joan, whether she could borrow her 1981 white Pontiac two-door sedan. Joan was apprehensive. She was concerned about her daughter driving during a storm. She told her daughter, I can't believe you're going to drive in this weather. You don't even like to drive at night. Nancy replied, Well, he's done so much for me that I'm going to do it. As Nancy drove away from the home, Joan felt an overwhelming sense of fear overcome her, which she described as a mother's worry. Joan Heyer waited anxiously for her daughter's return from Southampton, growing increasingly worried as darkness fell. She recalled, the clock was going 12 o'clock, 1 o'clock, 2 o'clock. She wondered if Nancy had decided to stay overnight due to the bad weather, but knew she would have called if that were the case. Joan had a restless night of tossing and turning, wondering where Nancy was. In the morning, she reported Nancy missing to the police, but since it hadn't yet been 24 hours, they informed her that she hadn't been gone long enough to be declared missing. In a state of panic, Joan searched Nancy's room and found William's phone number. Joan called him up and asked whether Nancy was still at his home. He confirmed that Nancy had arrived safely, but explained that they had left the night before. He said they had dinner and drinks, and afterward, Nancy and Billy drove off. He figured they were either still together somewhere or had gone their separate ways. Joan recalled, He seemed very forthcoming, and he was concerned about his own son. We were thinking at that point that young Billy had taken her somewhere and done something. Joan sat at home anxiously waiting for her daughter to return, but Nancy never arrived. After she was missing for 48 hours, Joan was able to file a missing persons report with police in Nassau. She also traveled to Southampton to file a missing persons report there as well. She provided investigators with a photograph of Nancy, along with a description of her white Pontiac. Naturally, the first place investigators were keen to begin was at William's Southampton home. He told them the same thing he had told Joan that Billy and Nancy had left his home around 9.30 p.m. Investigators appealed to the public for information and spoke with William's neighbors. Raymond Newman said he saw Billy and William on the afternoon of December 11th. They were going on a fishing trip and asked Raymond whether he wanted to come. But Raymond declined the invitation, citing the inclement weather and his desire to stay indoors and avoid getting wet. At around 3.45 p.m., Raymond glanced out his window to see Billy and William returning home from their fishing trip. He recalled, They waved, and they were singing jingle bells. Investigators then learned about the upcoming party at the hospital that Billy was scheduled to attend. There was a theory that Billy and Nancy had just run away together. However, it was a theory that Joan completely discounted. Nevertheless, when December 13th rolled around, investigators made their way to the North Babylon Firehouse in the hopes that the couple would show up for the party. They never did. 
By now, Billy and Nancy's families were frantic with worry. They scouted by foot along Sunrise Highway, while Joan hired a helicopter to scan Montauk Highway. They were looking for Nancy's car as opposed to bodies. It wasn't at William's house indicating that she, or somebody, drove it away. The owner of the helicopter, Pete Borner, said, She wanted to fly the route of travel. We followed it out to East Hampton. While the search for Billy and Nancy continued, Billy's landlord evicted him. Since he had been staying at Good Samaritan Hospital, he hadn't been able to work and had fallen behind on his rent. Billy was nowhere to be found, but that didn't deter his landlord from removing all of his belongings. On December 21st, the state police station in Riverhead received a report of an abandoned car in the parking lot behind Elks Lodge 1574 on Sunrise Highway Extension in Southampton. The caller worked as a bartender at the lodge, and he described how the car had been there since at least December 13th. Investigators quickly descended on the scene and came across the white two-door 1981 Pontiac sedan. As they approached the car, they scanned the area for any sign of foul play, but everything seemed normal. They peered into the windows, but the car was empty. Next, they tried the doors and the trunk, only to find they were both securely locked. Investigators ran a license plate check on the car and were shocked to discover that it had been reported missing by Joan Heyer, Nancy's mother, in Nassau County. They quickly contacted Joan and she handed them a duplicate set of car keys. They opened up the trunk and recoiled in horror as their eyes were drawn to the lifeless bodies of Billy and Nancy, laying side by side in a pool of blood. Nancy was naked, wrapped up tightly in a blood-stained blanket. Her clothing and her pocketbook were wrapped up with her and the blanket. Billy was fully clothed with his shirt pulled up around his neck. The drawstrings to his athletic-type pants were loosened at the waist and slightly lowered to just below his navel. There were pebbles found embedded in his buttocks, as if he had been dragged over a rough area. The scene around the car was secured, while Billy and Nancy's bodies were transported to the medical examiner's office for an autopsy to be performed. Suffolk County Medical Examiner Charles Hirsch discovered that Nancy had been stabbed in the abdomen and torso multiple times with a pointed weapon possibly a kitchen knife. The stab wounds had penetrated her liver and heart, causing her to bleed out rapidly. As for Billy, he'd been shot at close range in the head, face, and chest 14 times from a small caliber weapon. There was blood on Billy's arms near his wrist, which gave Dr. Hirsch the impression that he had been attempting to defend himself from the gunshots. There was no indication that either Nancy or Billy had been sexually abused, and the pathologist struggled to determine when they had died. Although Nancy's car had been observed abandoned in the location where it was found on December 13th, the bodies had little to no presence of decomposition. That could have been explained by the cold December weather, which would have inhibited decomposition. The missing person investigation immediately changed into a murder investigation. The investigation was led by senior investigator Theodore Nixa. 
he shared his belief that Billy and Nancy were killed elsewhere, and then their bodies were stuffed into the trunk and driven out to the area where they were found. It was further disclosed that their wallets, along with their identification cards, were found inside the trunk. The wallets both contained money, which eliminated robbery as a motive. Investigators were baffled by the apparent lack of motive and couldn't identify a single person of interest. Nancy and Billy were both highly respected and well-liked individuals with fantastic reputations. By all accounts, they didn't have an enemy in the world. Investigators appealed to the public for any information they may have. They asked if anyone had seen Nancy and Billy after they left William's house to get in contact. They were working on the theory that Nancy and Billy left William's home and were intercepted by their killer at some stage as they returned home. Trooper Thomas Collins said, We are on a cold trail and have not yet begun to break the ice. Another element of the case that perplexed investigators was the fact that the car had been wiped clean of fingerprints. Typically, in crimes of passion, it's unlikely that a killer would be so careful and methodical to go this extra step. While they tried to work on figuring out a motivation and identifying a person of interest, an aerial search was conducted in the area surrounding the car. They were looking for any kind of clue that could assist in the investigation, and also searching for the two murder weapons. On December 23rd, Nancy's loved ones gathered for her wake at the Stock Funeral Home in Hicksville. They huddled together and reminisced about Nancy's infectious smile and kind demeanor. The following day, a funeral mass was held at Our Lady of Mercy Church in Hicksville. During the poignant service, the pastor condemned the violent actions of loveless people. The service was led by Monsignor James E. Bosell, who said to the mourners that because of the circumstances of Nancy and Billy's death, many people had questions. He explained that these questions were unanswerable, and then proceeded to comment on the prevalence of violence that could be found in every TV program and every movie, and made reference to the influence such things have on society. Afterward, the funeral procession made its way to Holy Rood Cemetery in Westbury, but not before stopping briefly in front of Nancy's home on Vincent Street. From here, they moved on down the neighborhood and to the cemetery. A cold wind blew as around 30 of Nancy's loved ones gathered together. They spoke the Lord's Prayer, and then individually and in small groups, friends and family tossed pink carnations onto the casket as it was slowly lowered into the ground. One woman, who asked not to be named, commented to a Newsday reporter, This makes no sense. She never did anything to anyone, and now someone, God knows who, has done this to Nancy. Billy's funeral followed at the Lynn Sullivan Funeral Home in Monticello, New York, but it was not attended by any reporters. With Nancy and Billy laid to rest, the investigation into their murders intensified. Investigators were determined to uncover any and all leads to uncover a person of interest. William, the last person to see Nancy and Billy alive, said they had left his home and driven off in the car. On December 31st, investigators requested to search William's lakeside property. 
He agreed and welcomed a stream of investigators inside. During the search, they made some very ominous discoveries. They found dried blood that matched Nancy's blood type inside the vacuum cleaner. They also found paint chips that appeared to match the paint chips found on the blanket that Nancy was wrapped up in. In William's bedroom, they found a wall that had been freshly spackled and painted. The sudden redecoration was suspicious and odd, given the fact that his son was just murdered. Investigators also discovered during their search that William owned a semi-automatic Marlin 22 caliber rifle. According to a firearm expert, they believed that this was the same type of gun that was used to kill Nancy. However, the gun appeared to be missing from the home. When William was queried about this, he said that he gave it to his son on December 11th, the evening he and Nancy came to his home for dinner. It was the first time that William had ever mentioned this. It seemed to be a peculiar fact to omit, given that his son had been shot dead. The findings gave way to a terrifying possibility that Nancy and Billy had been killed inside William's home. William denied this was the case, sticking to his story that they had both left his home alive and well after dinner. Since it was 1986, there was limited technology available, which meant that investigators could not determine for sure whether the blood was Nancy's. They could only determine that it was the same blood type. As a result, there was no direct evidence, and investigators left William's home that night without an arrest. However, they continued to focus on William as a person of interest. They also decided to keep their suspicions under wraps. The public, on the other hand, were growing anxious for any updates on the case. They feared that a dangerous killer was on the loose and that anybody could become the next victim. In early January, senior investigator Nixa addressed the public's concerns and said, We're obtaining new information all the time, but this is a lengthy and tedious process. We're working hard on it. While they were keeping their cards close to their chest, investigators continued to pursue the possibility that Nancy and Billy were killed at William's home. They wanted to establish when exactly William had purchased the semi-automatic Marlin 22 caliber rifle which seemed to be missing. They embarked on the Shinnecock Hills Sporting Goods Shop, which sold firearms and searched through their records. They discovered that three years prior, William had purchased the missing weapon there. In an effort to uncover more evidence, just days later, investigators began circulating flyers with details and descriptions of Nancy and Billy. These flyers describe Nancy as standing 5 foot 7 inches tall with brown hair, brown eyes, and braces on her teeth. She may have been wearing blue and white tie-dye pants and a shirt with either a blue and white cloth jacket or a leather jacket with black suede sleeves as well as white, ankle-high shoes. Nancy may also have been wearing a gold necklace with Nancy written in large script letters. Billy stood about 5 feet 7 inches tall with brown hair and blue eyes. He may have been wearing black pants, a gray shirt pulled over a red, white, and blue checked shirt, and he was probably wearing moccasins or leather sneakers. 
investigators asked if anybody had seen them between 9.30 p.m. on December 11th and on December 13th when the car was found parked behind the Elks Lodge. Senior investigator Nixa said, We have no idea of their whereabouts between the evening of December 11th and December 12th. We're hoping that someone who saw the vehicle could provide us with information we could use as a lead. The officer explained that several theories were emerging, but they couldn't disclose any more information. Unfortunately, nobody could account for Nancy and Billy's movements. Besides William, the only sighting of them was when Raymond saw them returning from their fishing trip. The discoveries made within William's residence were alarming, prompting investigators to summon him to the police station on January 3rd for questioning. Despite being grilled, William adhered to his previous statement that Nancy and Billy left his home around 9.30 p.m. Since there was no concrete evidence to charge him with, William was allowed to return home. He told his neighbor that he had been beaten by the investigators while being interrogated. Less than 12 hours later, William was taken by ambulance to the emergency room at Southampton Hospital after swallowing six to eight Valium pills, which he washed down with alcohol. He was treated at the hospital and released back home several hours later. Investigators speculated if the overdose was a suicide attempt and if it signaled a guilty conscience. 
the grim discoveries led investigators to finally publicly share their belief that Nancy and Billy were killed at William's home. However, they stopped short of naming a suspect. But William was already feeling the pressure. He refused to answer any questions from reporters, but his attorney, Jeffrey Weingard, said that he vehemently asserts his innocence. It's bad enough to lose a child. Weingard also charged that his client had been mistreated during police questioning. Assistant District Attorney Michael Ahern argued back that Weingard had not allowed William to sign a complaint or even give a statement. He also commented that he found the mistreatment charge unfounded. On February 25th, a Suffolk County court judge issued a warrant for the arrest of William on charges that he murdered Nancy and Billy. Assistant District Attorney Edward Jablonski announced, We can put the crime scene there and the people there. He added that it was evident that William had cleaned up the crime scene with the vacuum cleaner, spackled the walls, and then repainted his bedroom. He said, The crime took place in his bedroom. Certainly the son was killed there. The female companion's blood is mostly found in the vacuum cleaner. Throughout the investigation, detectives had learned about the troubled relationship between Billy and his father. William was described as moody, irritable, and unpredictable, and he had excluded Billy from his lavish life in the Hamptons. Billy had desperately wanted to be part of his father's life but he was excluded so much that he didn't even know his father's phone number. If Billy ever wanted to call his father, he needed to go to a go-between in New York City and then have his father return his call. Even more cause for concern, William had what was referred to as a tremendous coke habit and was labeled a big-time gambler. He was also an alcoholic and had served time in state prison for auto theft and had been arrested five times on the same offense. It isn't known how Billy had gotten to Southampton, but according to those who knew him, he had visited his father that weekend to ask for money. Billy had mounting medical bills, and he was behind on his rent. Investigators believed that William had killed Billy to avoid helping his son financially. As for Nancy, they believe she was just collateral damage, at the wrong place, at the wrong time. Once the arrest warrant was issued, investigators returned to William's home to arrest him. However, they found that he was not there. They were informed by the neighbor, Raymond, that William hadn't been home for a couple of weeks. Investigators immediately reached out to William's attorney and asked for him to surrender his client. They hit a brick wall when Weingarten informed them that he had no clue where William was and that he was no longer representing him. Assistant District Attorney Jablonski announced publicly, We think the best thing for him to do now is surrender. His lawyer said all along that if his man was indicted, we should inform him and he would surrender his client. As investigators pressed on with their search for William, they stumbled upon his blue Mercedes-Benz in the American Airlines parking lot at Kennedy Airport. The discovery was foreboding, fueling speculation that William may have fled the country. However, William did not own a passport, but that didn't mean he couldn't have obtained a false one. Investigators issued a nationwide alarm for William and announced that he was now considered a fugitive. 
The search for William quickly gained momentum as investigators began interviewing all of his neighbors, friends, and family. According to the family, they had no idea where William was. The last time anyone in his family had seen him was on February 10th, when he visited his stepmother in Farmington. They learned from one neighbor who said that William had told him he borrowed money from the bank to pay his attorney, Jeffrey Weingard. Investigators decided to look into this angle further, and they discovered that William certainly had borrowed money. In the days before William vanished, he borrowed $160,000 from Metro Fund Limited of Manhattan. He told them it was for a second mortgage on his Southampton home. Senior investigator Nixa said to Newsday, With all the attention and publicity that this matter is getting in the news media, it would be a logical assumption that he doesn't want us to know where he is. In the early morning of May 2nd, a police officer in Bellport was approached by a man who identified himself as Michael Allen. He spoke with a Texas accent and told the officer he had just flown into Newark Airport and was looking for his motel in Hoppage when he became lost. The officer gave the man directions, but as he turned to leave, he couldn't shake the feeling that the man looked familiar. He wrote down the license plate of the man's rental car and then thumbed through some wanted posters. Immediately, one face stood out, William Fisher. The officer called for backup and made his way to the motel where he and his colleagues checked the parking lots for the rental car in question. The following morning, the car was spotted in the parking lot of the Holiday Inn. Equipped with shotguns and wearing bulletproof vests, a group of officers surrounded the motel. They were assisted by a hostage negotiator, just in case the situation took a nosedive. One of the officers approached the door of the room where the man, who identified himself as Michael, was staying and knocked. When the man opened up, he was ordered to come out. Oh, Lord, he exclaimed, and immediately complied. The officers were sure they had just captured William, but the man's identification proved otherwise. He was quickly identified as Michael Allen from Texas, an innocent man who had gotten lost while searching for his motel. Michael later said of the incident, So I opened the door, and the first thing I saw was a half a dozen police officers with flak jackets and large body shields in front of them, and they all got shotguns and automatic weapons. Investigators were straight back at square one, with very few tips or leads coming in despite several appeals. In June, the FBI joined the manhunt. That same month, William was added to New York State's list of the 12 most wanted persons. This list is compiled and maintained by the New York State Police, and an individual must meet a specific criteria to be added. They must be wanted for a violent felony, and have an active arrest warrant, and be a significant threat to public safety. State Police Investigator Gene Corcoran said of the investigation, It is a very active case but we have no new leads at this point. We are convinced he is long gone from the local area and there is nothing to attract him back to the area. He managed to walk off with a substantial amount of cash. Despite their best efforts, the search for William continued with no promising leads or tips. In early November, lawyers for Metro Fund Limited began moving to foreclose and sell William's Southampton home. 
Thomas Wynn, an attorney for the firm, said, We are trying to complete all the paperwork involved in the foreclosure. It had been discovered that William didn't just owe money to Metro Fund Limited, but several other creditors as well, including for the first mortgage on the house, builders, carpenters, and landscapers. Attorney Wynn described that the amount William owed was staggering and said he estimated his house needed to sell for at least $500,000 for everyone to be paid off. The months continued to trickle past slowly with no fresh leads or tips. Eventually, those months transformed into years, and in 1992, William was featured on the Fox program, America's Most Wanted. It had already run on the show in 1988, but the case was now considered a cold case, and investigators requested for the show to re-air. After the show aired, investigators received around 60 tips from the public, one of which came in from as far away as Trinidad. Investigators were particularly interested in one of the tips. It came in from a tattoo artist in Fort Walton Beach, Florida, who said that a man walked in off the street and asked him to tattoo a rose to cover up an old tattoo. The old tattoo was on his bicep, and it read Mary. William had the name Mary tattooed on his right bicep. The man paid $75 in cash and never gave his name, but investigators flew to Florida to interview the tattoo artist. While this tip was being investigated, investigator John McCrory announced that the initial investigation had been botched. He accused the Suffolk County District Attorney's Office of barring investigators from arresting William after the first search of his home. McCrory said that the District Attorney's Office wanted the arrest to be delayed until a grand jury had indicted William on charges of murder. When that happened, however, William was already gone. Lieutenant Gene Corcoran countered Investigator McCrory's comments and said state police had no complaints about how the district attorney's office handled the case. Unfortunately, the television show did little to assist the investigation, and the tip in Florida never panned out. By May 1993, investigators were seeking new tactics and cracking the now-cold case. We don't know where he is, but if he's interested in changing his circumstances, we would be more than willing to accommodate him. Not only would we provide room and board, we would even pick him up, said Captain James Harney, commander of the Violent Felony Warrant Squad. As expected, nothing came from the appeal, and William stayed as elusive as ever. Throughout the years, the case of William Fisher and the double murder haunted investigators who came and went. Many went into retirement feeling frustrated and defeated by their inability to capture him. But on April 15, 1996, a glimmer of hope appeared when a witness claimed to have spotted William in Southampton. The call led to an influx of investigators embarking on the area and questioning locals to try and ascertain if anyone had seen William. Unfortunately, investigators were unable to verify the reported sighting of the infamous fugitive. Fast forward to the end of 2016, and the case was once again reopened. This time, investigators were armed with new technology and determined to bring justice for Nancy and Billy. In a case that is plagued with dead ends, 
the re-examination led only to another dead end. As time passed, some investigators began to speculate that William may have met his end. His heavy cocaine use and penchant for alcohol could have finally caught up with him. The whereabouts of William Fisher still remain a mystery today. If he's still alive, he would be a 78-year-old man living out his retirement years in the shadows, always looking over his shoulder. This episode was researched and written by Emily G. Thompson, editing and scoring by Corey Hiltman, script editing, additional writing, and production direction by Rosanna and Benjamin Fitton. For more on our series and notes on this episode, please visit theywalkamonguspodcast.com. And for more on the Law & Crime Podcast Network, please visit lawandcrime.com podcasts. This has been They Walk Among America. Thank you for listening and please be safe. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com.